Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your prowling of a host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined today by my kitten co-host and wife, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Meow. Okay, so you're going to take it full-hearted, aren't you? Oh, you just called me a kitten. I'm wondering why. Well, so I'm just they, meowing. They always tie into the episode, so it gives you a clue as to what we're going to talk about. And of course, I'm sure Obi would greatly appreciate this one. All right. Well, instead of banter, Goldie Ann, I have a joke this week that isn't awful. In fact, it's absolutely clawful. Jesus, really? Yep. Meow. <laughs> Goldie Ann. What? What's a cat's favorite color? Brown. Try. Purple. Oh gosh, that's my favorite color. Well, see, I told you you were a kitten. Everything ties in together. Yay! And yeah. speaking of tying in together, uh, today's episode contains stories about animal abuse and deaths, especially dogs. I, I'm out. <laughs> see you later. Okay. Some of the details can be quite graphic and disturbing to our listeners. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. And with that, let's travel to North Carolina, which has always been a land of beauty and mystery. For the small community of Bladenboro, this is especially true as it sits nestled by pine trees and swamplands at the southern edge of the state. The county is mostly rural and only a few towns dot the landscape, making it the perfect hunting ground for a creature that held the population in terror during the New Year's holiday of 1954. Only those armed with rifles would venture out into the hunt of a creature described as about four and a half feet long, bushy, and resembling either a bear or a panther. Join us today as we take a walk within the mist to North Carolina to discover the vampiric creature known as the Beast of Bladenboro. Okay, you say something like the Beast of Bladenboro, and I think of a dog, but you've got me over here meowing, so explain yourself. And I will. Okay. Each part of the chapter will add a little bit more to the description and the identity of our creature. Okay. So we'll begin with Chapter 1, Happy New Year. Woo! Happy New Year! Our story begins on December 29th of 1953 in Bladen County in the town of Clarkston. This is the time of the year when the joy of the holiday season is upon the citizens and they prepare their New Year resolutions, looking forward to the next year as a time of change and renewed hope. For one local woman, however, instead of the sounds of festivities, she heard the cries of her neighbor's dogs barking and whimpering. It was so loud that she had to go out to investigate. There, she was greeted by the chill of the night 
and the emptiness of the neighborhood around her. Everything had gone as silent as the Christmas song itself and was perfectly still. She strained her eyesight for any sign of the dogs which had caused her to expose herself to the freezing December temperatures or of whatever had spooked the hounds. It was just as she was about to give up on her investigation that she saw a shadow move just a short distance on the horizon of a hillside. Whatever it was, it moved as smooth as liquid and seemed to blend in and out of the shadows. Whatever it was, it was able to move without a sound. As the woman's eyes became more accustomed to the darkness, and as the shadow made its appearance beneath a patch of moonlight, she saw it for what it was. According to her, she saw a large, cat-like creature described as being, quote, sleek, black, and about five feet long. That's one big kitty. Especially for North Carolina, which doesn't have those. They don't have black panthers? The creature continued its prowling along the field, paying no heed to the woman until she watched it skulk off into the darkness. She would have chosen to ignore the unidentified creature, thinking it was just a figment of her imagination, if it had not been for the news on the next morning, reporting that a dog in Clarkston, North Carolina, approximately eight miles from Bladenboro, was reportedly killed. This would not be the only report of killing within the community. A few days later, on New Year's Eve, Bladenboro Police Chief Roy Forres was called out to the farm of Woody Storm. Expecting it to be regarding some overly zealous New Year's Eve celebrators who may have overdone it with the alcohol and frivolity, he was shocked to discover that two of Storm's dogs had been killed just outside of their kennels by something very large and very powerful. The farmer usually kept his dogs to travel with him during his frequent hunting trips. They were big and fierce dogs with experience hunting down some of the more dangerous prey in the woods of North Carolina, not the type of animals to lose in a fight. It seemed incredible to believe that something had managed to not only take on two of the dogs, but had so savagely torn the dogs into what their owner described as into ribbons. Worse yet was that the attack seemed to have occurred so suddenly and without warning right next to their home. As the police chief looked upon the devastation, he was quickly attracted to one detail above all others. The poor dog's bodies had been completely drained of blood. My lord. According to the newspaper article regarding the attack, the owner had this to say. Quote, My dogs put up a good fight. Whatever it was, it killed one of the dogs at 10.30 and left it lying there. My dad wrapped the dog up in a blanket. That thing came back and got that dog, and nobody's seen the dog since. At 1.30 in the morning, it came back and killed the other dog and took it off. We found it three days later in a hedgerow. The top of one of the dog's heads was torn off and its body was crushed and wet, 
like it had been in that thing's mouth. The other dog's lower jaw was torn completely off. Whatever was happening, it continued throughout the New Year's Eve night. Chief Forrest was inundated with reports of dogs being attacked from all across the county. One, a Mr. D.J. Pate, said he watched from his service station as a dog was attacked by a large creature that dragged it into the woods. Terrified people called in during all hours to say that they saw an animal that was like a bear or a panther, while another reported that there was something three feet long, 20 inches high, with a long tail and a cat's face roaming his neighborhood. Even reports that did not see the cat-like Night Stalker would talk about hearing the creature's unearthly screams coming from the swamps near the town. They would be described by the locals as sounding like, quote, like a woman with a knife stuck in her back. Damn. How do they know what a woman sounds like with a knife stuck in her back? How many horror movies have you watched with women getting stabbed in the back? How many horror movies did they watch in 1958? Maybe they saw the real thing. Ooh. Times were different back then. <laughs> Times were rough. <laughs> Meanwhile, the animal has been described as resembling either a bear or a panther. Wilmington hunter S.W. Garrett also claimed to have heard the creature scream while hunting and likened it to that of a panther. At one time, the area was home to a Carolina panther. Felis Concolor Cougar. But in 2018, it was declared extinct by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. According to their official press release, no states or provinces provided evidence of the existence of an eastern cougar population, nor did analysis of hundreds of reports from the public suggest otherwise. The Carolina panther once ruled the eastern coast of North America, primarily along the Appalachian mountain range from northern Vermont all the way down to Georgia. According to the North Carolina Wildlife Commission, there were originally 11 subspecies of cougars in North America, but only two of them, the eastern cougar and the Florida cougar, were found east of the Mississippi River. Unfortunately today, only a handful of the Florida cougars still survive in southern Florida. Early records of North Carolina mammals show that the panther's population started declining through the 18th century. This was due to persecution, hunting, poisoning, trapping, the loss of habitat, and the decline of its major food source, the white-tailed deer. The last documented sighting of the Carolina panther was one that was killed in Maine in 1938. There had been no reports of a North Carolina specimen unless this case in 1953 was an example of a Carolina panther thought to be extinct but still roaming the woods around Bladenboro. The end of 1953 would keep the police force busy chasing after a shadow that was able to slip into the shadows of the trees and into the swamplands, leaving a trail of bloodless bodies of dogs. Poor puppies. I warned you. Chapter 2, The Vampire Beast. 
If the population of Bladenboro was expecting a new year of hope and joy, they were tragically disappointed as the creature attacks continued with the new year. Two more dogs were found. One chewed up so badly it was hardly recognizable. Within the next few days, more dogs were found dead with mutilated bodies. The hell? <clears throat> the strangest part was this was a community of hunters with very well-trained dogs that should have been able to handle any kind of an aggression. However, the bodies kept mounting up. The local police were growing concerned and Chief Forrest decided it was time to call for help. He had one of the dog carcasses brought in and ordered a necropsy, which is a diagnostic procedure resembling an autopsy to determine the cause of death for the dog. Law enforcement were completely astonished as they read the results of the autopsy. The report said that it looked like all the dog's blood had been sucked out of its body, vampire style. The state veterinarian sent back word to the police department that there wasn't more than two or three drops of blood left in him. The victim's bottom lip had been broken open and the jawbone smashed back. It was the most brutal and savage attack that had ever been called in to work on. The damage was so severe that it was impossible to determine what could have killed and drained the poor canine. For the newspapers, both local and nationally, they all picked up the story. It didn't take long before everyone was talking about the, quote, vampire beast of Bladenboro. Wow. Descriptions of animals being attacked to have their blood drained by a canine-like creature does match the description of a well-known cryptid known as the Chupacabra. First reported sightings originated in Puerto Rico in 1995, and the name comes from the animal's reported vampirism as a goat sucker. The creature is said to attack and drink the blood of livestock, including goats. Physical descriptions of the creature vary from a reptilian and alien-like, generally the size of a small bear, or to the more dog-like version, which is particularly seen in southwestern United States. Sightings have been reported in Puerto Rico since the 1970s, and this creature has since been reported as far north as Maine and as far south as Chile, and even outside the Americas in countries like Russia and Philippines. Could this incident in 1954 have been the very first Chupacabra sighting without even knowing it? Chapter 3, Hunting Down the Beast the beast. Concerned with the prospect of having such a dangerous and deadly creature roaming the woods surrounding their community, Chief Forrest soon initiated a hunt to track down the beast and kill it, whatever it was. On the night of January 3rd, the police chief attempted to search for the creature with his trained and well-experienced hunting dogs. He took them out to the trail, the hounds sniffed it, but then pulled immediately away from it, and no manner of convincing by Forrest could get them to go back and follow the trail. Oh, that's not dumb. You know, you've seen, like, the 101 Dalmatians, right? They have that whole twilight bark thing. It's like a telephone. 
Okay. So they already knew that all these dogs were dying. They weren't going to be next. Oh, so it was already on the red alert through the uh, yeah. Bark Express? Yeah. Well, whatever it was that they smelled, they wanted no part of it. And therefore, the police chief had to call off his hunt. A half dozen brave youths and their dogs spent January 4th searching for the creature. While that night, Forez was able to manage to get 8 to 10 other officers to conduct their own hunt for the blood-drinking creature. You know, I'm all for them going out and finding this beast, but why are they taking their dogs with them? Stupid! Well, it's, it's North Carolina, and these are hunters. That's just the way they do it, yeah, whether they're, they're hunting bears, boars, or deer. Yeah, but they're killing dogs, so why take your dog? Bait. Wow. Rude. <clears throat> well, hunters who traveled to Bladenboro from Wilmington also searched for the beast that evening, reportedly tracking it for three miles around the swamp. So this thing had a huge hunting area. Right. The arrival of hunters to the beast's hunting grounds did not appear to slow down its feeding. On January 5th, the beast was witnessed attacking another dog. So I was watching it. The witnesses stated that the dog had managed to escape the claws and teeth of the much larger creature. The dog raced away at its greatest speed with the beast in hot pursuit. Unfortunately, the dog nor its body was ever found afterwards. Tracks of the beast have been left behind at various locations where attacks were reported. One distinct set was seen along a creek bed in the mud. All the more terrifying was that there were two sets of prints, and one was a smaller version of the other. It would appear that the people of Bladenboro were not just dealing with one monster, but it was breeding. Oh, God. The game warden of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, Sam Colberth, said that the tracks he investigated indicated a catamount, which is another name for a cougar. One local resident claimed that the beast had tracks similar to those of a dog, but he also said that he had never seen a dog that large. Chief Forrest was also reported as believing the beast to be a wolf. He said that, quote, old folks say they remember seeing wolves in the Bay Swamp area and talk about them every now and then. So between all of these individuals, there's a large number of possibilities. A very large dog, a wolf, or an extinct Carolina panther. And let's not forget the chupacabra. <laughs> yeah. A.R. Stanton, a man from Lumberton, North Carolina, thought that the beast of Bladenboro was a German shepherd and hound mix named Big Boy. He had given it to a Native American boy who lived along the edge of the big swamp of North Carolina. Big Boy was dark and did have a long, bushy tail. Stanton claimed that Big Boy was capable of leaping over a six-foot fence and was known to kill chickens from time to time. Lumberton veterinarian N.G. Baird said that it was very feasible that Big Boy was responsible for the attacks. Baird also said that it was possible Big Boy or another dog could have killed the other dogs and then lapped up the blood rather than sucking it. However, there was still no practical proof. 
Was the beast of Blainborough a great cat, much like the extinct panther, or a large feral dog? Most of those who descended on Bladen County thought that the only way to find out for sure what the beast was would be by killing it. Hunting parties grew each night from the 10 that started to within days the number of armed hunters grew to 500 people and then to over 600 men from as far away as Tennessee descended on the town. Each one made their way with their dogs hunting through the woods and the swamps for the creature. During the evenings of January 8th, four fully armed fraternity brothers from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill made their way down to the town because they wanted to capture the beast and put its head on their wall. Oh God, some good old boys there. Needless to say, there was a large amount of alcohol flowing during those nights. Chapter 4, The Beast Loses Its Fear of Man. Bladenboro resident C.E. Kinlaw heard the sounds of dogs whimpering and she went outside to investigate. Since it was daylight, she didn't have any real concerns at the time. Nearer the dogs was what she described as a large mountain lion. It was swatting at the barking and terrified canines. And as these dogs were tied to their kennels, they were trapped with nowhere to escape from the much larger predator. It was the distraction of Mrs. Kinlaw that caused the beast to turn its head away from its intended prey and focus on its new victim, the housewife. Without warning and no need to build up on its speed, the beast raced from the three houses down the dirt street in front of her house to within a few feet from her front porch all within the blink of an eye. Mrs. Kinlaw did not even have time to be fully cognizant of what was happening. The creature opened its mouth and revealed the large fangs, and it was instincts that was all she had deep down. She knew she was in real danger of being ripped to shreds. Uh Uh-oh. She let out a blood-curling scream from deep within her soul. It was a sound so loud and so emotional that it caused the fearsome creature to freeze in its attack on her front yard. The extremely large cat stopped and decided that it did not want to deal with whatever could scream so fiercely. It turned its large head and fled back into the swamp just as her husband rushed onto the scene. A neighbor also came to her aid, all just catching the cat leaving into the swamplands. Outside her home, the tracks left in the dirt road were, quote, bigger than a silver dollar, according to Chief Forrest. Animal lovers aside, the people were growing really frightened. Well, yeah. National news even made it worse because it was slow that week, and the newspapers from across the nation picked up the sensational story. And as a result, Far more people than could have been managed by the county's very small police force flocked into the town. It was said that there was more hunters hoping to kill the beast of Bladenboro than there was even residents and locals who lived there. Wait, you mean the news incited a riot? That's odd. Not a riot, but it definitely terrified the entire uh, community. 
All because it was a slow news day. Yes, they had nothing else to report on. The town, in fact, was terrified. Eve Butler, who was a young man in Bladenboro at the time, recalled, quote, Nighttime was the feared time around these parts. As the sun set, the entire community on the west side of town went indoors and didn't come out until necessary. Everyone stayed behind locked doors. The fear of the beast had a real effect on Mr. Butler and his family during that time of the 50s. According to him, we didn't live in the town limits at the time, and almost everyone had an outdoor privy, so pretty much an outdoor outhouse. To supplement the outside convenience, most houses had what was called a thunder jug, a big jug that could be used at night and emptied into the privy during the day. That jug got plenty of use during the scare. So nobody wanted to go out to the outhouse with a giant blood-sucking monster Whatever. on the loose. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame him. Yeah, uh, this was the first time I've ever heard of a thunder jug. Yeah. But when you're scared and gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> Chapter 5. The hunt grows out of control. More than 800 people started turning out to hunt for the beasts in the swamps. Chief Forrest had his own plan. He planned to tie up dogs as bait to lure the creature out. But, luckily, this plan was not put into action. He received a telegram from a humane society in Asheville, North Carolina, protesting his plan to stake out dogs as bait for the creature. Thank God somebody's come to their senses. Even back in the 1950s, before animal rights and animal protection was really a thing, it's kind of lucky for those dogs that they did. Yeah. And with that much overexcitement and that many guns, plus the alcohol I'm sure was flowing, Chief Forrest was afraid that there could be consequences. The decision to call an end to the hunt came about because of the very real danger that an overanxious hunter would shoot someone thinking he was killing the beast. I'm kind of surprised that, yeah, there was no real accidents occurring during this time. Right. Or at least none you know of. Well, none that actually got reported. Yeah. Mayor Woodrow Fussell, who operated the town theater, went to Charlotte, North Carolina, to book a horror film to capitalize on the hype surrounding the sightings of the day. The mayor, who owned his own theater, had the movie, quote, The Big Cat, in his theater at the peak of the excitement. He advertised, now you can see the cat. We've got him on our screen and in Technicolor. That's marketing for you. He even told an interviewer that he believed the creature to be a hoax, even though he was the one that called the newspapers about the dead dogs. He found the manner of their death strange and said that a little publicity never hurts a town. Oh, God. Well, you got to understand that during the 1950s, when the height of the craze for gimmicks promoting films, producers would install buzzers in the seats of movie houses and have ambulances waiting outside in cases of anyone overcomes with terror during a show. Right. So this kind of fit right in there with that, having a giant cougar or mountain cat roaming your woods and then having a movie about it showing in your local theater. Fussell can't really be blamed for knowing a good gimmick when he saw one. I guess not. 
everyone started joining in on the hype. There was another Bladenboro resident known as Dick the Half-Man Hilburn. <laughs> Half-Man? Well, he, he was named this because he was born with no legs and only had one arm. And he still had a remarkable career. He traveled with the circus for some years, working as a tattoo artist, and then he ran a sideshow with his partner, Carl the Frog Boy of Norwood. <laughs> when he returned to his hometown of Bladenboro, he then turned into an artist. Because in addition to his many other skills, he was a talented artist who started doing sign painting when he, was, when he returned home. When the monster madness began going around, he saw his own opportunity and started to produce license plates proclaiming Home of the Beasts of Bladenboro. And he made a whole bunch of other memorabilia with the vampire beast painted all over it. <laughs> so a lot of the pictures and the drawings that you see of the Beasts of Bladenboro were because of him. So another person who took advantage of the situation. He had no trouble selling his artwork to the scores of hunters who had descended on the town. The terror that was the Beast of Bladenboro initiated during its first attacks was evolving in ways of profiting off of it. Chapter 6. The Real Beast of Bladenboro is Revealed. Ooh. On January 13th of 1954, Luther Davis, a local farmer, discovered a bobcat struggling with a steel trap in Big Swamp, four miles from the city. He shot it in the head and brought it into the town. Now, this bobcat was a little bit unusually large, but nowhere near the size of the panther or cougar size. Right. This didn't stop Mayor Fussell and Chief Forrest, who hung it up on a flagpole in the center of town. They posted a sign underneath stating, This is the Beast of Bladenboro. According to them, the stories of the size of the beast and of the damage that it caused was just an exaggeration, and that it was actually just the case of this little 40-pound bobcat. Right, sure it is. The mayor then told newspapers that the Beast of Bladenboro had been found and killed, but there was questions of how such a small cat could have killed and mangled the hunting dogs. Even stranger, on the same day, Bruce Sullis from Tabor City was leaving Bladenboro when he hit a cat with his vehicle. According to the police reports, it was spotted like a leopard, about 20 to 24 inches high and weighed between 75 and 90 pounds. No pictures of this animal were seen, but he said that he took the cat home with him to Tabor City. Or like a stray cat? A very <laughs> big stray home. cat. A stray leopard. Then there was a third man, the professional hunter and guide Barry Lewis, who is credited in some newspapers as having killed the animal. Three different men, all claiming to have killed the Beast of Bladenboro, yet none of their trophies matched the size nor the ability to kill hunting dogs like the one that had been told about terrorizing the community for the past two weeks. There was even conflicting reports about whether it was Davis's or Lewis's cat that Mayor Fussell photographed and sent to the newspapers. <laughs> Lewis was reportedly hunting in a different part of Bladen County when he shot and killed his bobcat. Regardless, after a week or so, 
things settled back down to normal. Whether or not any of the three hunters actually killed the beast of Bladenborough, the hunters decided to leave town and the reports of dog killings stopped coming in. Well, that's interesting. Whatever the beast of Bladenborough was, it had vanished back into the night in the swamps from which it first emerged. Could the beast of Bladenborough have just been a misidentified large bobcat? It seems to be that's what the story is leading to. Right. Chapters. Except I don't know any bobcat that sucks a animal dry. You can lap up all the blood you want, but you're not going to get all the blood out of it. Chapter 7. One Year Later. According to an article printed in the Robertsonian on December 15th of 1954, almost a year after the case of the Beast of Bladenborough, a mysterious animal struck on the previous night within shouting distance of the Robeson Memorial Hospital. Whatever it was, it killed five medium-sized pigs and three chickens on a K.M. Biggs tenant farm, giving rise to the belief that the famed Beast of Bladenborough was again on the prowl. Strangely enough, no blood was evidenced and indicating that the killer either employed the same blood-sucking traits as the Bladenboro beast. Tracks were evident many places on the farm, and according to McLam, had led off to a small bay area just behind the cemetery. Kind of makes you think back to the Chupacabra again when it starts right. talking about cemeteries. Yeah. McLam said he started to follow the tracks in that direction that night when his dog awakened him around midnight and started trailing that direction. At that time, Marvin and his father, Perry McLam, got out of bed when chickens and the barking of the dogs caused them some concern. The younger McLam said he followed his dog a short distance, but then the dog stopped. When he came up to the point that the dog had trailed, the dog started whimpering. It wouldn't go any further no matter how much the hunter prodded it. The dog then bolted for the house and McLam said that he too decided not to pursue his hunt and return to the house. Somebody chickened out. Considering something that's you know the size of a cougar roaming out there I kinda don't feel bad for him. At that time Nothing had been killed. It wasn't until on the morning that a chicken was found on the back porch. Its head chewed completely off. Another chicken was found a short way from the house. Then they discovered the pigs. They were dead at feeding times, with tracks all around the house and the pig pen indicating that the animal was large or larger than the fabled beast of Bladenborough. McLam couldn't identify the tracks, but said he didn't think they were dog tracks. Worth Pittman of the 7th Street Road, who worked nearby at a corn mill, said that he saw the tracks and also agreed that he didn't look like those made by a dog. The prints were four inches from heel to toe. Wow, even our Great Dane don't have that big of feet. You're right. We should have to measure his feet someday and just see how big in comparison it is. Many of the prints were all over the farm. 
The slaughtered pigs had been enclosed in a regular board-type sty with the boards nailed close enough together to prevent the passage of an animal. But the fence was four feet high. Something seemed to have gotten over the fence. McLam reported the incident to the sheriff's department and officers came out to investigate. The next day, a large stray mongrel dog was killed about a half mile from the scene where the five hogs were mutilated and killed. According to the county dog warden, Carol Freeman, he was called in to investigate the strange killing and reported that the dog found in the neighborhood was, most probably, the killer from the day before. The animal's feet were not actually compared to the four-inch tracks found around the farm, but Freeman said that he thought that the dog's feet were large enough to be the same. Tracks were leading away from the farm were in the same direction as the dog that had been slain. The coincidences led everyone to believe that it was the dog that caused the death of the chickens and pigs. One strange part, though, was that the farmer, McLam, reported that the three chickens had been taken from the roost up in a tree. The dog warden didn't even attempt to explain how a dog could have climbed a tree or reached up to where it was. Meow. <laughs> We're going back to the cat. The dog's owner could not be located since the animal carried no identification and no vaccination tags. It weighed 65 pounds and was apparently a cross between a German Shepherd and a Collie. That's interesting. Yeah. Collies are small. Uh, they can be pretty large. Not as large as a Shepherd and definitely not as large as the creature described as the Beast of Bladenboro. Right. And I kind of find it hard to believe that, yeah, we got over a four-foot uh, fence to kill five pigs and then get out again. That'd be awfully full. Yeah. Too full to jump. The heir to the title of Beast and Bladenboro seemed to be identified as a very large, crossbred, and very aggressive feral dog rather than the vampiric great cat from the previous winter. Regardless of what became of the Beast and Bladenboro, its memory remains strong within the community. Boost the Boro, a nonprofit community booster for Bladenboro, holds an annual Beast Fest in which the Beast and Bladenboro, or B.O.B. Bob, <laughs> serves as its mascot. Again, the city has found a way to make a profit off of this incident. Boost the Borough makes the use of the Beast's sensational history amongst locals to generate excitement for the community fundraising event. October 28th and 29th of 2022 will mark the 15th annual Beast Fest. The event will play host to food vendors, amusement park rides, and arts and craft vendors for everyone to enjoy. That will require cash payments, but there's no tickets to get into the event itself. So this is kind of like a, like a state fair. A state fair or at least for the uh, city fair. All of the festival entertainment is free and there is plenty of activities that don't require a purchase. In 2021, a documentary by director Billy Lewis was released covering the history of the creature and its animal attacks on the small town community. Now there's also one other interesting 
connection that I wanted to bring up. Okay. The football team for the NFL, the Carolina Panthers. Since it is named after the Carolina Panthers that is supposed to be extinct, and one of the theories is that if the Carolina Panther isn't extinct, then the Beast of Blamborough might quite possibly be one. Could we have an NFL team that is sporting a cryptid as their mascot? That'd be cool. That would be very cool if they... I just can't see how... I mean, there's so many panthers everywhere. I can't see how they could be extinct from just one section. The Carolina panther isn't just one section. It's one species or variation of... Just like you would have black bear, grizzly bears, brown bears, and so forth. It's a type of panther, and this type of panther has gone extinct. And its normal hunting grounds was the North Carolina region. Okay. But what if it's not extinct? That would make things very interesting. Very. Well, they, they've seen one by now. There are statements that uh, people have seen it. All those witnesses seeing dogs being attacked. One woman almost was attacked as the creature raced up to her front yard. So people have said they've seen it. We just don't have any proof yet. Right. The only proof we have is of dead bobcats and a dead collie shepherd mix. So, were feral dogs attacking the livestock and dogs of the North Carolina community? Or is it possible that a Carolina panther is not quite as extinct as previously believed? Even more terrifying is the thought that the beast of Bladenboro could be a first example of the chupacabra, the dog-like, blood-sucking creature of the American South. It seems that the two cases of the beast attacks have been blamed first on a bobcat and then on a stray dog. But who knows how the creature will someday return to seek its next victim and drink its blood. Well, being sure to look for kittens out in the woods tonight, I think this is a good time to make our way out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Facilian and Facilian Studios for our introduction music. We are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about great cats roaming the countryside. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, also having an email, Podcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your tales. We hope you enjoyed our story about the Beasts of Bladenboro, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, listen closely for the screams in the dark and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Sam says goodbye, too.